Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, <clears throat> as we look at your passage in Ezekiel, we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit through your word. I pray, Father, that I would be faithful uh, to the passage and I would preach uh, only what you want me to preach. We pray that in your mercy you would do this for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dive into the passage, I thought it's just very apt that we address the theology of uh, kingship and its progressive developments before we actually dive into the passage. And we should look at Ezekiel's context and how Ezekiel thinks about kingship before we do that. Now, Ezekiel's first vision is the vision of God as king. And he is in his heavenly court. And in Ezekiel's vision, we see that God is that all-powerful God and wise. The rims of the wheels of his chariot are covered with eyes and four faces look in every direction. These things show God's omniscience. He knows everything there is to know. He sees everywhere and the face that he can, and the face and the fact that he can be on this chariot that moves in all directions shows that he is all-powerful and he could be at any place in any one point in time. Now Ezekiel was not in Jerusalem or the temple. He was in exile and this astonishing vision showed Ezekiel that God would be with his people wherever they were scattered. Like Moses and the burning bush, like Isaiah in the temple, like Paul on the road to Damascus, we see it in Ezekiel. God himself takes this initiative and he comes to us and he reveals himself to us. Now the sec second astonishing vision in the book of Ezekiel is the vision of God's departure from the temple. And we see that in chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. And we see the reason for that in chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that are committed here and there, engraved on the wall all around, was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beast and all the idols of the house of Israel. Now the Jews had gone to great lengths to protect Jerusalem, thinking that holding on to Jerusalem was actually holding on to God. God turned his people to the care of the false gods whom they really loved. In chapters 6 to 24, largely composed of the prophecies against Israel because of her sin, God wants his people to know exactly what he has, why he has deserted them. We see in the example of that 
in chapter 7, verse 22, when he says to them, I will turn my face from them and they sh because they profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. Now, this, this idolatry was practiced in God's temple itself. And Ezekiel was given a divinely revealed direct broadcast of, of this pagan service occurring in Jerusalem's temple even before it happened. In chapter 16, verses 15, God speaks to his faithless bride, Israel, and he says, you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby and you became his. The people would sit, they would enjoy God's word and then they would ignore it. They would go through all the motions of worshipping God but their hearts were devoted to idols. They were tempted to trust the wealth of the land, the, politic, the political stability of the Davidic line and the temple itself, all the while ignoring God's word. One of the, purpose of the book, purposes of the book of Ezekiel was to reintroduce God's people to him as king and lord. That's why the book starts with a vision regarding God in his throne room in heaven. All judgments executed and all hopes promised had that one purpose. Because God is the true king, he appoints kings like David as his permanent agent to exercise his divine rule here on earth. The king can only do what God allows him to do. Now the stipulations for kingship in Israel were given to her long before she even asked for a king. In the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 17, and there God had two fundamental requirements for kingship. Firstly, Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to Moses in chapter 17, verses 15, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And secondly, second part of verse 15, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now the reason for this is he must be born and raised in the Israelite way of worshipping God and living for God. He must be well versed with Israelite law. Now what's the problem with Israelite kings? It's finally time for Israel to ask for a king. And this happens during Samuel's prophetic ministry in 1 Samuel 8. But what is the problem with Israel's request? And what are her motives here? The people sin in their reason for desiring a king. 
And the implication are, are actually this, their lack of faith in Yahweh's ability to lead them successfully. They want a human king over the God of the universe as king. That's what's actually happening here. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, the Lord says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Can you see that? The problem here in 1 Samuel 8, verse 20, is they want a king who is like other nations. Now that's the problem. The problem is not asking for a king because long before they asked for a king, the stipulations for kingship was already given. The problem here is they asked for a king like other nations. Now that had theological connotations attached to it. A king like other nations. You know, for a theocracy like Israel, you want to become like other nations. If you look deeper into the problem, that's the first step in actually you adopting pagan philosophies and ideologies, isn't it? You being a theocracy and you having a king who is God when you ask for a king like other nations, what does that actually mean? You actually want to adopt the pagan philosophies and ideologies. They are attractive to you. And they get a king just like that. They get a king just like their Canaanite neighbors, imposing excessive taxes and mistreating God's people and most importantly, leading them astray from God. From beginning to end, the northern kingdom fails because none of the 20 kings were loyal to Yahweh, the God of Israel. By contrast in Judah, Josiah and Hezekiah of the house of David represent ideal kingship. Josiah is, 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 uh, is noted because of his incomparable uh, obedience to God, to the Mosaic Covenant. And Hezekiah is incomparable because of his trust in God. Deliverers from within Israel could save them from foreign oppressors, but who can save them? from their own ruthless and corrupt kings? Who can save them but God, the true shepherd and the king of Israel? Now, that's a bit of a short theological background on kingship. And now we move into our passage. Now, the ideology of king as shepherd to his people is from early as 2450 BC. And this ideology continued in the ancient Near East into the monarchical period of Nebuchadnezzar. 
the Babylonian king in the 6th century. Now, Ezekiel is prophesying and pronouncing oracles of judgment against Judah at this time. And And through the power of the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel uses this metaphor to describe the bad shepherds and the kings of Judah. Kings were meant to be shepherds of their people, leading and caring for their flock. But Israelite history shows us how this was rarely achieved. Ezekiel would have been aware of the failures of the most recent kings before the exile. One example of this was up in his prophecy in chapter 21, verses 25 where there is a reference to a wicked one, a prince of Israel, probably Zedekiah. And all predecessors, namely Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin, who earned the utter contempt of the prophet Jeremiah. The pagan cults referred to in Ezekiel, in chapter 8, verses 1 to 18, were a continuation of the movement which began with Jehoiakim's ascension to the throne. He started this. He started this pagan worship in the temple. And it just continued to Zedekiah's time. That's why in chapter uh, 34, verses 1 to 6, Ezekiel writes, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them so that they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for the wild beast. My sheep were scattered, and they wandered over all the mountains, and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or to seek for them. Three accusations against the kings of Israel. Firstly, they cruelly exploited the people who were, under their, uh, who were under their care, swindling them and fattening themselves. And that we can see in verses 2 and 3. Second accusation, they showed not pastoral qualities. They were required of, of them, like caring for the weak and the defenseless. And third accusation, Instead of keeping the flock together in safety, they allowed them to be scattered over all the earth 
and, the, and they were scattered. And the word scattered is mentioned three times in that, in that portion only, showing what a great job the shepherds actually did. They were scattered, they were scattered, they were scattered. Jesus talks about this when he speaks about the failed leadership of the Jews in Matthew 9 when he says, they were like sheep without a shepherd. In chapter, in chapter 34, verse 7 to 10, God then says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the white beasts, since then was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherd, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to the feeding the sheep no longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, and they may not be food for them. God declares that he is against the shepherds, even though they were supposed to be ruling with his authority. They were not allowed to rule anymore. The flock would be taken out of their care. They would be removed as shepherds and kings in judgment. And that's why in, chap in, chap in chapter 34, verses 11 to 16, we read, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out this flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from, my, from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabitants, places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be the grazing land. Friends, sheep must be looked after by someone and God is saying that he himself will take on that role of a shepherd of his people he will find the strayed he will rescue the lost he will feed and tend the flock and he will pay attention to the weak and ailing members in our gospel reading in John 
we see a shepherd just like that. And he says in John chapter 10, verse 8 to 15, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own knows me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I just want to capitalize on two aspects in that portion of John. First one is in verse 8, where Jesus says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Probably at the back of Jesus' mind was Ezekiel 34. That's the false shepherds of Israel in the past. And the second aspect I want to capitalize on is the second part of verse 15 where Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Now that's the ideal shepherd, isn't it? That is what God means by, by saying, I will be the shepherd of my people. And it finally comes down to Jesus and he finally fulfills that, that, that great saying that I will be the shepherd of my people because this shepherd called Jesus, he finally dies for his sheep that his sheep may be saved. He goes and looks for the lost in the parable of the lost sheep. We can see that. If one sheep was lost, he would go and look after it. He would go looking after it. Where has the sheep gone lost? Brothers and sisters, now that is the true shepherd of the future and will lay down his life for his sheep when he sacrificially dies on the cross for us. I am the good shepherd, showing very clearly by using the term, I am that this was God himself wanting to shepherd his sheep. That's what the God of Israel meant when he says in Ezekiel 34 verse 12, as a sheep seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from, the, from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. Until this point in the passage, we see that God's judgment only on, are only on the, shepherd, on the bad shepherds. Now the good shepherds turns and deals with the bad sheep in the flock. And so the shepherd says in chapter, in chapter 34, verse 17 to 22, As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord, Behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between ram and male goats. It is not enough for you to feed on the good pastures that you must, you must tread down with your feet, the rest of your pasture 
and to drink clear water that you, you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet. And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink, with, drink what you have muddled with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I will, myself will judge between fat sheep and lean sheep. The flock will be purified not only of its bad leadership, but also its bad members. The Lord will deliver Israel from all her distress, and he will do so by appointing one true and responsible shepherd for his people. So we see it in verse 23 and 24. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord and I have spoken. Now human kings were never the solution to the problem. The prince who is the Messiah, he would perfectly exercise God's rule over his people and he will bring in the new age of the covenant peace between God and man. So in the last section of the passage, God says in verses 25 to 31, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them a place all around my hill, a blessing. And I will send them and I will send down the showers in the seasons. They shall be showers of blessing, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase. Israel could rejoice for though she had experienced the cruel and corrupt leadership of shepherds, and kings, she, would now, she was now assured that God would provide perfect leadership through the good shepherd who would care for her as a shepherd should. There was still hope by God himself for Israel. Now, what is happening in the bigger picture of things? What is actually happening in the bigger... You know, when a child does something wrong, you know, you send him in retribution either to go upstairs or to, or to go in the, in the corner and stand for a while. And, and that's sort of a time-out kind of thing. Now, that's what God's doing in Ezekiel, isn't it? He's actually punishing them in judgment. But in that punishment and in that judgment, there is grace. There is absolute grace and there is mercy. And we see that mercy when he, 
when actually actually brings them back from exile. In judgment, there is mercy. And that mercy in Ezekiel's context is bringing back from exile. And what does a passage like this mean for us on this side of the cross? Friends, we have a shepherd who has laid down his life for us. And we are very thankful to God. We didn't have the kind of shepherd Israel's had because we have the king, the kind of loving and caring shepherd. And we should be very happy to obey that shepherd's voice. We should be obeying the voice of the shepherd only and not want a shepherd and a king like all the other nations creating a loophole for all the funny teachings and the ideologies that can seep into the church. This is a lesson to us. We have a shepherd. And, you know, we are a sheep. Why, why does God metaphorically uh, refer to us as sheep? Because we have this inherent tendency to screw it all up to make a mess out of our lives. But we have a shepherd that comes after us again and again and again to a point that he lays his life down for us and dies for us. To the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.